0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? More dramatic, or like sort of understated, or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival.
1: You are listening
2: to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R one oh two point seven FM. Yes, and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3RR's weekly foray into the future of humankind and not-so-kind. Bushy is my name, and as always, sitting opposite me in the studio is the wonderful Adam Grubb. Hello, Adam how you doing mate i'm pretty good how good are you game on the weekend that was a big game it yep. was um it was, it was a really a good game played in good spirits i reckon that was my favorite community cup of the six or seven that i've played in very very cool thanks for representing cover uh anytime i'll be back and until i can't walk um well, hopefully maybe a bit before that um and thank you to the rock dogs for being um humble victors um the magical panel technician is jed McCarty. hello jed hello bushy hello adam you're doing good I am super bit of a cold, but that's the time of year. Time right? of year. <laughs> We've got a cracking guest in the studio this evening. We've just been in the green room chatting for a bit, and um, I advise you all to strap in. This is going to be a big
0: one, Adam. Who are we talking to this evening? We have David Spratt with us. David's a climate activist of much repute. He's an author and a businessman, and he's research coordinator for the Breakthrough National Center for Climate Restoration. He blogs and publishes reports at climatecodered.org, a site named after his co-authored 2008 book. Welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, David. Good evening. Do you want to start just by um, telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got to be a well-known climate expert? Oh, the expert
1: word worries me. <laughs> uh, interested in worrying. Surely Hunter. by now,
0: surely by now. Um,
1: oh, look, I've been a baby boomer, uh, activist across a whole lot of issues, um, Spent a whole lot of time in the peace movement, trying to stop a couple of wars in Iraq and some uranium mining before that. Okay, um, well, that's, that's an
0: interesting segue. That, we'll that, get back to you later because yes, of you we could recently... T- we, could
1: t- we, could t- we could go back to the Middle East. Yep. Um, spent quite a bit of time with Palestinian community in Melbourne. Um, mm. Did a whole lot of stuff um, when Islamophobia wasn't a word. The Wr- first reports the federal government on anti-Arab and anti-Islamic um, racism in Australia. So mm. I've you know, gone across the issues and... Mm. Um, I got under this issue about 12 or 13 years ago because, you know, we're all environmentalists and you think that people are looking after your interests in all the issues that you don't have time to be active on and I think it was when um, Sir Nicholas Stern, the British economist, brought out a report for the, um, for the then UK government. In his report, he said... Look, oh, yeah, we should, we should aim for two degrees of warming and not more than that because that would be dangerous, but it would be too economically disruptive, so I think we should go for three degrees. Well, I knew enough to think this is, this is, not, this is not real flash. Mm. And then a few days later, um, I think it was Don Henry from ACF, or one of these people had an op-ed mm. in the age saying, stern, stern, great step forward, and I went, ah, i got going to get on to this issue. So that's yeah, what motivated yeah.
0: me. Yep. So you saw that uh, what, what even some of the environmental uh, organisations were promoting wasn't quite enough, it seemed. Now, we're going to talk about climate change tonight uh, in reference to your new report, which is relating to conflict and military uh, issues surrounding climate change. It's called Disaster Alley. But let's, before we get there, give us an update Now, in 2008, you co-authored with Philip Sutton, Climate Code Red, which was, I think, sold internationally. Uh, It did did a wee bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seemed to make quite an impact. And one of the main points you were making was that the International Panel for Climate Change, their predictions were seeming to be dangerously conservative. It wasn't a difficult point for you to make Mm -hmm. at the time because... By the time the report came out in 2007, the fourth report, a lot of what they were saying would happen in many decades was already happening. Mm. It's been nine years since you published that book. What's, what, what have we actually seen happen in, in climate change?
1: Oh, Look, I guess I had the, the, the sort of advantage of being ignorant. I came to an issue from the outside and I read all the literature and I saw what people were doing and it didn't click for me. And I thought, there's something wrong here. The problem seems to be worse than the official story is, is being told, and that's where that investigation started. And mm. in that book, we said... And we were inspired by a guy called James Hansen, who's now retired, who was the... the NASA, huh? said to be the greatest living climate scientist of all time, former head of NASA, wonderful mm. man. And he kept on saying this stuff, and other scientists would say, oh, Jim's a bit extreme. Mm. And the basic story was that there is some science which is middle of the road... But in this, you don't want to be in the middle of the road. You don't... You You very rarely want to be in the middle of the road. No, (laughs) you you really want to be on one side. That's (laughs) familiar. But that there were things happening that weren't part of the day-by-day climate change. It gets hot, there's more moisture in the air, it rains more. But what people called these feedbacks or or where parts of the system could tip. And I just felt that we were closer to some of those tipping points than Mm. we thought. So we wrote a book... Which um, some people said was a bit extreme, um, but ten years on, what we said was close to the mark. Mm.
0: Than our critics. Well, it's very disappointing to hear. Mm. Uh, let's. L- Shall we focus in because it's in the news at the moment on Antarctica. Mm. This is the You've also, B- Sea ice Yeah, and you recently published a report on, mm. on a, the issues around Antarctica. Yeah. Um, Look, this, this
1: is a great example because the International uh, Panel on Climate Change, the scientist report, way back from, I think in the first or second report, said we don't think there'll be any melting, of what they officially term, ice mass loss from Antarctica in the next thousand years or a statement like this. This is stable. It's not even a question for us. So this was what scientists were saying 15 mm. years ago. Mm. And in fact, it wasn't true. And the whole story of climate change is that things have happened more quickly than anybody expected. Mm. Even Ross Garner, the Australian economist, um, who wrote two reports for the Labor Party on climate change. In his second one, he had a, what was called a science update, and he just said in... In one page, beautifully, he said, this system is changing more quickly than we thought. When the evidence about something is always on one side of the predictions, you know there's a problem with the discipline. And that's it. And there, there are a lot of reasons why uh, it is too conservative. Scientists have been under the political hammer. You don't want to say what you can't prove four times. Yep. Uh, there are things that models can't predict, and, and, and climate models are not very good at what are called nonlinear events. They're very good at telling you what the weather will be today or next week. Mm-hmm. They're, they're quite good at telling you whether it will be Niña and El Nino this season. But some parts of the climate system don't go in a linear way. They go along and they literally change to a different system. Mm. And the Antarctic is one of them. And in 2014 and 15, um, some papers, some very good research papers came out and said, we think that parts of the Antarctic system have flipped in that on West Antarctica, which is the most northern part of it, uh, that no further energy, no further global warming would be necessary for these glaciers to disappear and that's three to five metres of sea level rise we don't know how soon that will be. We can't tell that yet. But, you know, you could be looking at a metre or more just from West Antarctica this century. So that's a really big change from 15 years ago, saying it's not a problem. And that, I guess, is is a story that's writ more large around the climate system.
0: And what's happening right now with the Larsen Sea ice shelf?
1: Um, so ice shelves, um, when glaciers uh, run off the land and into the ocean, the ice spreads out on the top of the ocean, forms what is called an ice shelf. So it's not grounded by land. It's, it's, it's grounded by sea because it's very cold. And these things um, move out and they crack off, always have, always will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't say that's climate change. Yeah. But the circumstances there are such and it's warmer and now, they're now getting Unfrozen water sitting on the top of the ice shell, uh, the ice shelves, which has never happened before, right. so um, it's is consistent with climate change. You wouldn't saw, say climate change has 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 caused it, but this sort of event will happen more and more often, mm. and that's that's the domino because the ice shells sitting out over the ocean actually are a block or a plug to the glacier which is sliding back. down yeah. mountains. So yeah. as the ice shelves carve and produce the things that get big floating ships Mm. um then it releases the glaciers behind it and that's a process that um these researchers a couple of years identified as probably being underway and unstoppable for the present conditions and we 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 talked to those researchers and said what would you have to do to actually stop this west antarctic process unraveling and they said look you probably have to go back to conditions of the 1970s Mm. So mm. the lesson you, you draw from that in terms of the amount of carbon dioxide in the air, the amount of warming is we've already gone too far. And I
0: guess... When you say the conditions, you mean the CO2 levels. The CO2 levels. Right. Yeah. So we don't have to reduce our energy use back to the 1970s. We have to draw we have down... To reduce,
1: we, have, we have to have less, less oh. energy imbalance in the system. What, yeah. would, what would be safe? And it was something we said in Code Red. I mean, warming's are now about one degree. And Jim Hansen had said it. He said, mm. look up to half a degree of warming is probably safe, what we know from past climate history and what we've seen, uh, above half a degree it's not and and these researchers more or less confirmed that rather amateurish guess that we'd made that mm. certainly under, uh, well under one degree the Antarctic ice sheets have gone the Arctic sea ice is is going to go in summer and mm. Even at one degree of warming, we see that coral reefs are now in a bit of a, a, a dance of death. So the idea that's come out of the international policy-making process that two or maybe one and a half will be safe for the future of humanity is um, not real flash. Mm, yeah.
2: Certainly not humanity
1: as we've come to know it
2: uh, now. Um, So your latest report, uh, which was co-authored with Ian Dunlop, it's called Disaster Alley, Uh, Mm. Climate Change, Conflict and Risk. Now, this is an interesting one to address. It looks at the humanitarian, security and military implications of climate change. And uh, you have a very interesting forward writer in it um, called Sherry Goodman. Can you tell tell us about Sherry Goodman?
1: Sherry Goodman is a was probably a New York um, Jewish lawyer, really smart one. She was brought into the Clinton administration as Under Secretary for Defence for Environmental Affairs, which meant that she was brought in to clean up, uh, no longer use military bases. Far out. Uh, to decontaminate them and so on. And that, and that mm. was her job. And she got into that uh, and spent eight years um, um, working with military people. And then sometime after Bush got in, she was approached, I think, by some philanthropists and said... We think that the military view on climate is really important. Um, what would it take to get the military understanding of, of climate change more in a public space? And um, she was basically hired, as I understand it, to do that. And she put together a a panel of the most, most senior uh, retired military people in the US. Five stars, five mm-hmm. services. Yes. Yeah. Serious dudes, I have to say, when when you see them in a a line. And uh, they became the CNA Military Advisory Board and they went on a journey. Some of them at the beginning were probably climate sceptics. And they sat down and they talked to climate scientists and they talked to professionals and they figured out for themselves that climate change was the biggest threat to human civilization, and produced a number of reports. Uh, In the US, retired military people are much more publicly available are in, in, in Australia, and mm. they went out and I think they really helped change the story.
2: Yeah, I would even suggest as well probably much more publicly respected as well. Uh, yes, the military
1: a- plays a much larger role in America. When Sherry came out here, which she did the tour for us in April, she's, the thing that struck her was that nobody in, in Australia knew or cared or knew anybody who'd ever been in the military, more or less, compared to the United States. That was the one observation she made. So it's a different culture, and they're really important voices, and and they have been really honest and and called it like it is, and I think that's something that we need here as well. Indeed.
0: So, well, before we talk about future possibilities that you've explored in your report, Mm. uh, shall we talk about... An existing one, an existing crisis in Syria. How has climate change affected what's, what's happening there?
1: Well, Syria, it's always easy to see these things in retrospect, I said, and yeah. uh, I, I suspect, and, and that's one of the things that Sherry said when she was out here. She said, after these events occur, you can see the climate drivers of the, of the process. What they're actually trying to look at now is whether you can in advance Mm. see, in this case, where droughts are coming and intervene before it gets to be made. So in Syria, Mm. you had uh, a not very democratic government, Mm -hmm. uh, which had already experienced peak oil. So in the mid-2000s, oil production was going down, revenue was going down. There was a form of austerity Mm. in that subsidies for things like fuel started to be cut off. You know where this story is going. People are not happy. Mm -hmm. Their standard of living is effectively going down. Then you had... Our friend we mentioned earlier, the war in Iraq, which had displaced a million and a half people into Syria, a million and a half mm. people going to cities, putting demands on food, apartment prices and so on. So that was the setting. Um, and then you had a record-breaking drought, 2006-2009 in Syria that displaced one and a half to two billion people. Two million, but, two million. Two million, sorry. Uh, the northeast past of Syria is actually being desertified uh, by climate change. Uh, there's clear evidence over the last century that there is drying across Mediterranean Europe. I mean, it's affecting mm-hmm. Portugal fires, yeah. uh, Spain, Greece, big fires, and Northern Africa. And it was that coincidence of this record breaking uh, drought which displaced another one and a half billion people in the cities and the system blew up. Mm. Mm. And so, and so, in that sense, climate change didn't cause the war, but yeah. in their terms, it is a threat multiplier or yeah. an accelerant to instability. There are other conditions there. Mm-hmm. You can say the same thing about Darfur, South Sudan, Mali. It's it's another ingredient that comes in, and it, it, it may be the ingredient that tips this, the the system from some discontent mm-hmm. into. The Big Bang. Yeah, Yeah. I just wanted to quickly,
2: um, before the show was um, getting uh, a bit of information off the internet, I just wanted to put the Syria crisis in some perspective. So Syria, with a land area of 185,000 square kilometres, the state of Victoria, where we currently sit, uh, a little more at uh, 227,000 square kilometres, the population of Syria in uh, 2014 was 17 million. Um, the population in victoria as of march 2016 is only 6.03 million i say that um 6.03 million still quite a few people the geography of syria fertile plains high mountains and deserts probably not unlike victoria so when you (laughs) talk about those mass migrations of 1.5 and 2 million people um if you're out there and you're listening you're trying to put that into some perspective imagine an area like the riverina in northwest victoria say mildura swan hill etc suddenly being non-arable going vroomp. yeah no no longer being able to support um the people there and those people have to find other places in the state of victoria
1: and one hundred thousand people descend on Ballarat. that's right yep that's uh, what you're talking about
2: exactly and if you're listening overseas for example you're in the state of california so california is only twice the size of victoria which is quite large but again you think about population density you think about um, a large area of one of those um, states or, or countries suddenly losing its viability,
1: or, or thinking about what did happen in Southwest United States mm. in the 1930s, which what was a form of climate-driven desertification—the dust bowl, the dust bowl. The dust bowl. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, and Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the show you are listening to. In the studio this evening, we're talking with David Spratt. He is the co-author of Disaster Alley climate change, conflict and risk. David, there's various ways that climate change can cause humanitarian crisis, affect local stability and increase the possibilities of war. Let's start probably with the low-hanging fruit of that discussion, which is food and water. How are these hit?
1: Look, this is where it all starts. This is what life is about and this is what state's about. It's why people form governance and and fight. Food and water, the basic protection, security, well-being of people. I mean, this is it's got to be the story of climate change yep. and this report is a fancy way of talking about those most fundamental things yep. mm-hmm. uh so we know with climate change that the world gets hotter which means that water uh, evaporates more quickly mm-hmm. um we know that monsoons shift from one place to another so we've had a weakening of the of the um uh, monsoon in northern china which actually contributed to china stopping wheat exports Right. In 2010, the same time that there was a very big heat wave and very large fires in Russia. That's which right. destroyed so much of the wheat crop there, maybe 2009, 2010, uh, which meant that Comrade Putin decided to ban wheat exports for six months. Mm-hmm. And the lack of wheat out of China and Russia tripled despite yep. price of wheat on the international market and that became the driver for the Arab Spring Mm. because the nine most uh, dependent countries in the world per capita for wheat imports are all in the Middle East. So that's... This is literally your daily bread. This is literally your daily bread. And and in Egypt, for example, um, basic food, wheat, bread, is a third of your budget. Mm -hmm. And if the price triples...
2: Yeah, that's
1: your whole budget. And, it's, it's your whole budget and <laughs> you've got your mobile and, and your rent and a whole lot of other things. So it's literally those sort of events droughts, fires interrupting the food supply, the same thing has happened in Syria, so that's that's one sort of story um, another sort of story will be to do with the inundation of land I mean, so this is the opposite side, so we've got drought on one hand we've got, we've got drought on one hand, water uh, water, inundation ra- rainfall shifting and then we've got inundation uh, so some of the really big floods in Pakistan, the one that displaced 20 million people was basically because the monsoon hit a part of the country it hadn't hit before where they didn't have the flood mitigation measures. Yep. It di- didn't that the water went away, it just went into the wrong place. Mm. A bit like Australia where it rather falling off southern Australia is now falling um, halfway to Antarctica yep. uh, for the same reason that rains in Europe are moving off Mediterranean Europe and becoming heavier over northern Europe. So it's that yep. process of, of shifting. Then you've got inundation of land. I had a little bit of a look about what would happen with sea level rises around the world. Now... This century, maybe two meters. We don't really know. The U.S. military have uh, scenarios for one meter and two, so they think two's a, a reasonable a reasonable go. Mm-hmm. Um, half a meter, one meter by twenty fifty. Twenty fifty seems like a long time. It's only thirty years away now, and the military mm-hmm. plan for thirty years when they build equipment. It's it's a thirty year plan. Mm-hmm. Um, almost. All of the Mekong Delta is less than two metres above sea level. A one metre sea level rise would take out a quarter uh, of the Nile Delta, which is the food bowl Mm, of of the um, the Middle East. And it's not just food. um, In China, that really big um, export zone where all the containers come from and our...
2: All well, of our
1: cheap T-shirts uh, and so forth. Yes, and Kowloon uh, coal and iron ore go, um, is built on a river delta opposite Hong Kong, um, in English called the Pearl River Delta. 40% of Chinese exports just... It's the whole show. Yeah. That whole delta is less than two metres above sea level, and it's sinking. It's, sealed, and, it's sealed, and and at the end of this century, China's export zone will be underwater. I mean, okay, they're going to build another one, but... It's not just a slow drip, drip, drip. It's it's the biggest the extreme events that hit. So if you think of something like Cyclone Haiyan, which yep. hit the Philippines, um, the the strongest cyclone ever recorded to hit land anywhere in the world. So one of the reasons that Sherry Goodman talked about Asia and Pacific as disaster alley. We were talking about Cyclone Haiyan and all the way across the Chinese coast. The 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 the, the waters off the Philippines are the most quickly warming waters in the world and Mm. the strength of of a typhoon is driven by the surface temperature of the water. That's where the energy comes from. So the more quickly the water warms, the more quickly you get Category 6 cyclones on a Category 5 system. And if if a, a high arm were to hit the Pearl River Delta now, the Australian economy would be over. Yeah. Right. It happened in, 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 in Thailand a few years ago. Big storms came in. You might remember all the car companies were underwater. You couldn't buy yeah. certain hard drives and chips for a, a few months because the manufacturing zone had got whacked. Yep. If a if high hit the Pearl River Delta and, and that free export zone, um, Australia would be in an immediate and deep recession. Mm. So these clim- climate conflicts can wind many ways indeed i 'm even thinking I mean if you talk about sea level rise
2: uh, on a maybe a seemingly trivial maybe not trivial level, if you just think about the pace at which our cities are designed to drain away during storms and, and all of the the waste leave our houses as soon as you add a, another meter of sea level to those things those little basic daily conveniences are no longer there.
1: And that's what we saw in Elwood when there were some Elwood floods. Exactly. And, and in there you've, you've got the two things you mentioned. You've got a rising sea level. And so it's not just the sea level, it's the storm surge. It's mm. when you get a really big storm, you get onshore winds, and the sea to start with is that bit higher, mm-hmm. then the effect is much greater. And in Elwood it's, you know, they'd also concreted over all the grass. Yeah, and so you don't have the natural drain. And the same thing happened in New York with Superstorm Sandy, mm. where this big storm came, but it was, in their terms, a foot higher than it, ever, than it would have been uh, 50 years ago. And in Lower Manhattan, that took out the main electrical substation, and Lower Manhattan didn't have power for three days.
2: Yeah, it's also... Uh Worth pointing out, California's had a, an issue in the last few years where they've been tapping their water table more and more for agriculture, and when that hasn't been recharged by rains that have, have been missing, the just the sheer weight of the Pacific Ocean right next door has started to push salt inundation into. Mm. So I mean, That's these happening things
1: in India and China, in yep. India, the overuse of groundwater. So, it's not only that the rain from above is shifting, mm-hmm. but that exploitation of, of, of groundwater is producing what, I mean, the World Bank says by 2030 will be a, a, such a severe crisis, a crisis in much of Asia that even they wonder about the stability of nations. So, it's another one of those sustainability loops meeting another unsustainability loop.
0: Indeed. Uh, Sea level rise will also cause just physical displacement of people, not not just the loss of trading ports and growing land. How how many climate refuge... Like, what just ballpark Uh, figures could we see in the next century? Well,
1: this is is a really interesting story because, you know, when people like me put big figures out there, everybody says, oh, they're just Hmm. exaggerating. This year I've heard two very senior military people in Australia put numbers that blew the heads off the audience in the room so Mm. when Sherry Goodman was in Sydney at the Lowe Institute in April uh, she spoke and there's a guy called Alan DuPont who used to be in the military who's a very senior uh, analyst I think he wrote um, defence white paper for Tony Abbott so you know he's Mm. he's one of the guys Uh, and He got up and said, look, I've looked at the figures around Asia. I mean, the nine most vulnerable cities in the world to climate change, to to sea level rise, and vulnerability is not only how far you're above sea level but your standard living and capacity to respond and and be Mm -hmm. resilient. Mm -hmm. So New York and London might be more vulnerable in a physical sense but they're less vulnerable in a social sense. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, look, I think this century we could see 150 million people displaced in Asia and I thought... Wow, he's really put a big number out there. That's very quotable. That's six times mm. Australia's That's current population. And then, then Monday of last week or the week before, um, Chris Barry, um, who's now retired, but was who, who was the Afri- head of the Australian military, was at a session run by the European Embassy on Climate and Security, and he got up and started talking about the Himalayan ice sheet. So we know uh, that... Uh, in the Himalayas uh, rise all the great rivers of Asia. I mm-hmm. mean, the Chinese one, the Yangtze, the the, the Yellow, um, the Mekong, right through India and and um, Pakistan, um, and those rivers have about a thousand, uh, sorry, uh, about a billion people dependent on the meltwater to some extent. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Well, look, I can see five hundred million people being displaced." If there isn't an ice jet on the Himalayas now, when that will happen, we don't know. By but it's going quickly. Yeah, it's going quickly. You know, we a few years ago brought out a um, uh, uh, a guy from um, Nepal, um, a Sherpa, who held the record for the fastest ascent of Everest. Yeah, you know, got about four stone and
2: <laughs> ringing wet. A, yeah. mate,
1: and big lungs apparently (laughs) Uh, or or great blood red blood cells and and he said i can just go up there quicker because in in summer half of what used to be ice Hmm. i can now do in my runners and from base camp to the top of the mountain he did in eight hours now this is a thing that people take days to climb each stage but it's Hmm. just going and so Chris Barry said 500 million I mean who knows I mean these are are figures actually beyond human comprehension so you put them out there and people just go I don't want to know about this Mm. but you know it's 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 big and i think we do have to talk about it because this this is our story
2: triple r is where you are greening the apocalypse is the show you are tuned to and our guest in the studio this evening is david spratt he's the co-author of disaster alley climate change conflict and risk uh you recently chaperoned sherry goodman um in australia uh she was the former pentagon official and uh she opened up the conversation um to some degree in the military circles here can
1: you tell us a bit about your time on tour with sherry well i mean here's a woman who really knows her stuff has spent 20 years with the the guys mainly with all the stars on the shoulders stripy stars, and and who who um created the phrase threat multiplier which was the thing that that she turned the 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 term threat multiplier and that was what went to the pentagon they get okay we get this yeah two words all the all that talk to to their climate to to, uh, to military issues, um, so she came with a lot of credibility. Um, so one, the media loved her because yep. she's telling a different story. This is like a story that hasn't been told here. Um, she got great access, talked to talked to government, talked mm-hmm. to uh, the big think tanks, um, and. Despite what people thought, they thought, this will all be guns and tanks and so on, but it wasn't. Mm. She made a whole lot of point that Australia's aid agencies, refugee advocates, would be really pleased to hear.
2: Yeah. So you, you and I spoke earlier today, David, and you said what sh- the message Sherry had wasn't, you know, polar bears floating on a piece of broken it's, ice it's and pe- disappearing frogs. It was It's
1: it's people, it's protection, it's water, it's food, it's it's well-being, it's it's those simple things in life. The first duty as well as greater ecology. It's greater ecology and so on. But, you know, it it's about the protection of people and and um sh- she was a daughter of Holocaust survivors, so she's pretty tuned into mm. <laughs> what it means to survive and yeah. protect and so on. I, I mean, probably a, maybe a slightly unusual person to be an Under Secretary for Defence, but there's two things she said that really struck me. She said, Look, the refugee conventions, the refugee governance around the world is just completely disconnected yep. from the problem we're going to have. We've got to do this from scratch. Right. And, and I think that's a really Im- important message. The second thing she said was, if these events get out of control like they did in, in Syria, past a certain point, there's no military solutions.
2: No, there's only and, so and, high a and, wall. That,
1: that's pretty obvious. It's like yep. a, a meter sea level rise displacing 30 million people in Bangladesh, and so no military solutions for that either. Even though the Indians want to build a fence, she said, you know what we need is radical mitigation, really radically cutting back climate emissions to try and stop these worst things, things happening to the extent that we can't have the capacity to see in advance where it's going. So the climate models, which we start this conversation at the moment uh, are about are fairly coarse, you know, they're several miles in their, their grids. Mm-hmm. So they can tell you in general terms, but they can't tell you in particular. And she said, and the work's now being done with supercomputers where you can say, we think in X period of time in Syria next year there will be a huge huge drought and if you can with greater clarity see where the problems are coming and we've seen them in East Africa now mm. if you can see them in more detail then you can intervene earlier yep. to, to do something about it and she, but she said and the third thing is you need a um, to build the resilience of affected communities, of hotspot communities. So they were non-military stories about from Mm. a a person who's been in this military climate space.
2: Do do you feel as though that That time spent in Australia with Sherry Goodwin, do you feel as though that has helped to get a greater acceptance and and an understanding of the significance of the climate change threat to security across those party and ideological lines we have in Australia?
1: Yes, I I think it did because she spoke to government. She sought the think tanks. National security think tanks have not been big on this issue. Um, Some of them, some of the bigger ones, don't have a single specialist. Right. On climate and security. <laughs> uh, we won't, we won't, We won't name them, but, you know, it's a, there's a serious intellectual analytical deficiency in this country on these issues. She, she fired up a whole lot of people. I mean, I think partly is a consequence of her tour. The Senate a couple of weeks ago passed a motion to have a Senate committee inquiry into climate and security, into this very issue. So I'm sure she... She got it going. And this is important because, you know, this is a story that, con- that connects with conservative people. It connects with business people. It's, it's, uh, there was an interesting story in uh, one of the Murdoch papers on the weekend, a guy writing about our report. He said, um, deniers might want to um, not like this story, but it's pretty hard to refute. Yeah. And I thought, wow. b- bingo. That's crossing the <laughs> <Bingo. a> line. <laughs> bingo. We've, we've now got a, a frame. You know, If you're going to have an argument about carbon price or electricity prices going up or whether windmills give you a headache, mm. y- you know, it, you've got problems. But in this terrain at the moment, um, it seems to work on ears that other things may not, and I think that's really important.
0: Mm. Well, besides uh, anticipating things like regional droughts, what can we do to prevent the worst-case climate scenarios happening? What, we've got five minutes to talk about this, but, you know, let's...
1: Tell the future of the... Of yeah, yeah. Crazy. Just
0: look, put it in a look, nutshell my, for my, us.
1: My take on this is, is really simple and is that we've got the economic capacity, you know. If we'd spent on climate what we spent on saving banks after the global financial crisis, we'd be halfway towards a solution, I mean, the amount of money that was poured into that to keep things afloat, I mean, it's like 100 to 1 or something. It's, it's ridiculous. We do have the economic capacity to do it. Um, we do have the, the technical capacity to do it. I mean, we've now reached this sort of tipping point where we know that that wind and solar with batteries is cheaper than any new power source built from fossil fuels. So so while before it seemed like you invested in solar because it cost a lot of money but it was a good thing to do, it's now a smart thing to do. Mm. Um, so we have, the, we, we, we have the capacity. What we don't have is the will. And, I mean, in Climate Code Red 10 years ago, we said this is like an emergency. This is like one of those circumstances where you've got to throw everything at it. And it's a pretty, pretty simple message. If, if this society wanted to throw everything at it, we could. So, David, you talk about people not being able to imagine it or not having the imagination to
2: see it. How, how do you instil that imagination? Because this, this is a people story. It, it's not a uh, economic story. It, mm. It's a story about people getting wet feet and...
1: Look, I don't think there are people out there showing the public leadership, to use a bit of a sort of flogged phrase. Um, if you go around Australia and say, who, who would you identify we'll, – we'll go around the room now. Who would you identify in the public space in Australia consistently providing ideas, leadership about climate over the last five years?
2: I would say Tim Flannery as a first thought, but w- – probably it's, it's one of those things where he, I don't know that he, he appeals to the people broadly. Mm-hmm. Adam? Oh, I'm stuck. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, this I, is, yeah. I'd say one of our previous guests, Tim Buckley,
2: is pretty yeah. consistent mm, but yeah. again, he's not a known not a known, known. But
1: just, you know, it, mm. it, it requires, you know, public, they don't have to be politicians. They can, no. you know, they can be a 73-year-old grumpy socialist politician who accidentally fell into leadership of the British Labor Party. They could be a grumpy senator from, from Vermont. It doesn't matter But to, yeah. to really fire people up, that's the one... I think that's one of the things that's really missing, to say, hey, folks, this is going to be a bit inconvenient. Yeah. Um, we're probably going to have to turn off the, the, the pay show heaters down Ligon Street because um, warming a room without walls is not the smartest thing we've ever done in this uh-huh. society. <laughs> um, <laughs> Trivial example, but we can go on this journey, we can get out of it, and we know we have. I mean, look at the fires in Victoria. I mean, it's really interesting. When a a fire hits, you don't go, oh, we better put a price on fighting fires and have bids and have a market for for firefighting, trading rights. You go, this is big we've got to whack this. You you pre-deploy the people. You have the power to say, get out of your house. We're going to throw everything at it. And political parties compete with each other to throw enough at the fire to stop it. And if Mm -hmm. they don't throw enough, then they're in in deep shit for having not solved the problem. I mean, it's the complete opposite of climate change. what? I mean, climate change is is a fire writ large. It's an emergency, but for a long time rather than a short term. So... Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we can talk about the war analogies. I mean, it's not particularly productive, but, you know, Australia and the United States went from economies producing in 1939, you know, a lot of commodities and not much else, to having economies where 35 40% of the economy... Was making things for a particular purpose. That was killing people. Not real good. But I mean, if you we want to turn around, we can certainly do it. It's just that mm. free market ideology and, a, and an an over obsession with you know consumption and and being a celebrity at 23 and a CEO of your own <laughs> social <laughs> advocacy organisation by 26 has sort of you know got us <laughs> a bit got us a bit in a bad corner. I think.
2: I think you have shot so beautifully from the hip (laughs) this evening, David, and we thank you enormously for your time. Thank you for
1: the time, the important issues, and good on you for doing it. Thank you
2: very much. One of uh, the big events of the Melbourne calendar just took place on the weekend. That was the Recklink Community Cup. It's, I think, about five to six weeks now until Triple R has its annual Radiothon. That's going to be running from the 9th, I believe, to the 20th of August. I may stand corrected on that. Uh, But uh, keep your ear to the radio. And uh, David, uh, in terms of what we've been chatting about tonight, um, some papers and some information yeah. and some people.
1: Okay, so our website is breakthroughonline.org.au where the report we talked about tonight and some other good stuff is. Um, the people are doing people are doing great Galilee work around, us, around the place. Um, you know, um, get a bit direct action-ish. Just go and look for Galilee Blockade. They're doing training and doing some good actions, but there's local climate groups, bloody passing politicians, bloody calling to account, dumping coal on their doors, all Mm -hmm. sorts of things. Um, So have a look at Galilee Blockade. Have a look at Climate Emergency Declaration, where there's quite a bit of stuff that we've been talking tonight about problems and solutions and speed and so on. So... Mm. um, lead blockade and maybe climate emergency declaration as a couple of starters.
2: Excellent. Well, we might grab some of those and put them up as links. David, thank you so much for your time this evening.
1: Oh, I don't know whether those should show. It's a pleasure.
2: It was a thing.
1: It was, a <laughs> it
2: was definitely a thing. <laughs> uh, cool. Adam... Catch up next week for another show. Yep. We'll awesome. figure out what we're
0: going to do. <laughs>
2: yeah, let's do that. Well, the apocalypse the, is unfolding at such a steady pace now that we've got to kind of go week by week, lot don't we? A lot of options. Plenty of options. <laughs> well, Bushy's my name. We'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, have all the fun.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.